So throughout this series, um, we've covered some very heavy and hard topics. Uh, today is part two of our question and answer. So if you're uh, just now coming here, if this is the first time or maybe the second time that you've been here and last week you're like, what is going on? And uh, this week we're going to do something very similar. Uh, past few weeks, um, I ask you guys in the congregation and online if they had any questions about the Bible, about me, about uh, life in general, uh, whatever it was, there's no question that was necessarily off the table, uh, but I would take all, I looked at all those questions and I considered them and uh, we are answering most of them. Uh, the rest of them will be today. This will be the last part of this series. We'll do Father's Day, just kind of looking forward. And then the week after Father's Day is when we'll start a, a different series uh, that I have planned for that. But instead of doing like too much of an introduction, I'm just gonna dive right in because uh, there's five questions that we're gonna cover. The first three are gonna happen fairly quickly, but the last two are much longer answers. Um, so in the... Uh, trying to keep our Grove kids workers and volunteers sane and not keep them over there with your kids for too long. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and go right into it. Uh, so first question is, what does the Bible say about the death penalty? What does the Bible say about the death penalty? Well, this is a highly debated topic among Christians. Uh, you'll find Christians that support it. You'll find Christians that don't. And you'll have a lot of Christians in the middle that are like, I really don't know. I've not considered it before. So uh, I do want to define what capital punishment is, what the death penalty is. It's the sentencing by the government of, a convicted, of convicted offenders to death for serious crimes. So here in America, if you commit what they consider a serious crime, you could receive the punishment of the death penalty and put on death row. Now, I do want to point you to a few passages instead of coming right out and saying if you should support it or not, because I don't know if you should support it or not. I know where I land, but where I land doesn't necessarily mean that's where you have to land. So I'm going to give you a few passages for you to go home, study on it for yourself, work it out with the Holy Spirit, and then stick to your conclusions. But we've got Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, which says, whoever sheds human blood... By humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. If you go to the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17 through 22, it says, anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for foreigner and native born. I am the Lord, your God. Now later, in, or actually earlier in the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, there's the fourth commandment, thou shall not kill. If you're reading King James Version, it'll say kill. Now some King James Version readers We'll read that and they'll say, well, killing is killing, whether it's legal or not. So the death penalty isn't an option because killing is still killing, whether it's legalized or not, whether it's justified or not. But I do want to say this, in the context of the law of Moses, the law of Moses has a lot of different crimes that you can commit that they considered serious and you would be stoned to death, put to death in different ways. So in the context of the law of Moses and the use of this Hebrew word, Killing is the reference to wrongful or unjust killing. 
Like, and that's where translations like English Standard Version, ESV, NIV, and some of your more modern ones will use the word murder. So they'll read, you shall not murder, or you should not murder. And the reason for their change in saying murder is that when Hebrews would have read this Hebrew word that does translate literally as kill, they would have saw it as unjustful killing. They wouldn't have saw it as a justified type of killing, which is administered by the government that God's put in power. But we don't necessarily think of it that way, right? We have a better word called murder. Everyone knows what murder is and everyone knows what killing is and we can distinguish between the two. So you shall not or thou shall not murder. Now that leaves it open as far as these passages are concerned for some type of justified killing through the death penalty administered by the government, not administered by you, by the government, not the one that... If they sin against you, it's not you. It's the government that's administering this. Now, like most of the issues that we've talked about so far, there's the New Testament that we have to work through because there's brings up the question, how much of the law of Moses are we actually under? And if you're interested in that answer, uh, tune in to last week's sermon because we did talk about that. But Jesus in John chapter 19, verse 11, tells us that uh, basically, essentially, uh, this is the Logan Hensley translation, is what happens is God gives the power to the government. The government doesn't raise up in power without God's guidance first. God first gives government's power and he gives the government's power so that they can maintain the order of his creation. Now, whether or not they use that power for the good or bad, that's not God's decision. That's their decision through free will. But they're given that power. And then in Romans chapter 13, you know, they're, they're under Roman oppression when he's saying this and when Paul is saying this in Romans 13. Romans 13 tells us to be subject to governing authorities. And throughout scripture, God is actually a God of justice. We can see that with uh, a, a very obvious one with Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed for their wickedness, for their serious crimes against God. And so you can take that and definitely come to the conclusion that um, capital punishment, the death penalty is justified because you're just being subject to what the governing authorities have put in place through the power that God has given them. But the reason that it causes such a divide, because if you just look at the Old Testament, it seems very clear, death penalty is justified. The main thing that causes the divide with these two passages is two passages from scripture, mainly. It, it's throughout the entire New Testament but it comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five, verse 38 through 39. Jesus says, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And later in chapter six, he continues on in the Sermon on the Mount. For if you forgive other people, when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. So the question comes up because throughout the New Testament and even throughout the Old Testament, we don't see it as much, but the Old Testament is filled with forgiveness and grace as well. So there's nothing that's changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament in that. But this question comes in of where do we draw the line? At what point do we quote unquote stop forgiving and put them under the death penalty? At what point do what does forgiveness come in? Like, when do we say yes to the death penalty if they have a chance of repenting? 
right? That's where a lot of this conversation is going to go because there's no sin that God won't forgive, right? So if we give them a chance to repent instead of just killing them for what they've done, then maybe they might turn away. In Ezekiel chapter 33, going back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 13 or 33, verse 19, it says, and if a wicked person turns away from their wickedness and does what is just and right, they will live by doing so. So under the New Testament and the Old Testament, you can also make the argument that the death penalty is something that we shouldn't support because we should be under the law of forgiveness. Just because, just like the Old Testament and the New Testament are both pushing, if they repent of their ways, they deserve to continue to live. Now, this is the difficult balancing act that takes place, right? Do you support that God is a God of justice and God has given these governments authority and you should be subject to that? And if someone unjustly kills someone, if someone murders someone else, they should also be murdered. Or do you lean on the side of we should forgive and God forgives, so we should forgive and just let God deal with the consequences, let God deal with his own judgment. Now, both sound good, but both are fine. You're probably leaning on one, but if you, I want you to consider this. If you are on the side of the death penalty, there's this issue that someone might be wrongly accused and commit or and, uh, they might be wrongly accused of a crime and they might be killed innocently because we're not perfect, our governments aren't perfect. So now that some of you have probably like, well, you know, maybe I should be on the side of forgiveness. You know, we're, we're talking about forgiveness here. What if it was Adolf Hitler, right? You, you're gonna keep him on death row or are you gonna say, no, let's just keep him in prison and, and we'll see if he repents. Now, some of you might still stay on that side and that's fine, but you gotta consider both sides. You gotta know where to draw the lines and that's why you have to go and study it for yourself to draw the own lines that you have. So I would encourage you, look at those passages, study them, pray on them, be receptive to the Holy Spirit, not just your understanding, but what the Holy Spirit is telling you and um, draw your own conclusions. Uh, next question. Will things get worse before they get better as we approach the end of time? Yes, next question. <laughs> I'm kidding, don't, <laughs> don't turn that. <laughs> Um, I'll elaborate for a second. Mark chapter 13 uh, is where uh, Jesus will talk about the end times. It, it happens in Matthew and it happens in Luke as well. Uh, around the same time, they actually frame it pretty well. But Mark 13, five through eight says this. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And it's talking about false prophets. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. These things must happen and the end will still come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Now, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, all of them will continue to, to elaborate on this. They'll talk about more things that happen during the end time as Jesus is talking about this. And then really Revelation is where we get the majority of our end time uh, theology and, and looking at that. We look at Revelation, we look at the back half of Daniel, um, both of those are, are our main source of what's going to happen at the end of time. But Matthew and Mark are unique in that, unlike Luke, they both mention birth pains in this passage. Now, the thing about birth pains is that I don't know much about them because I will never experience them, nor have I ever, and I won't. It, it just won't be a part of my story, and I'm so glad for that. 
Now, for the ladies in the room, this might be part of your story. It might have been part of your story, and you can thank your ancestor Eve for that. But I have been told that as the pregnancy progresses towards the time for the baby to be born, the birth pains increase in intensity and frequency, meaning the, the contractions. They happen more often, and the, the pain that follows with them are more intense. For Jesus to describe it this way, I think it's reasonable to draw a conclusion that the wars, the hatred, the betrayal, the sinfulness of humanity will continue to get worse. Just as the pain of the, the birth pains that happen will continue to get worse. The natural disasters, the wars, the, the divide, all of those things will happen also more frequently. And I think this is why Jesus describes it this way because these things that are happening in our world right now, right? You can look around the world right now, just turn on the news and you'll see that there's a lot of brokenness, there's a lot of wars, there's a lot of hatred, there's a lot of divide. All of those things are gonna continue to happen more frequently and with more intensity. However, we still have the ultimate hope in Christ that just as childbirth is painful, the joy that comes when the child arrives is far greater than the pain for most of you. But Mark chapter 13, later in that, verse 26 through 27, Jesus talks about his second coming. He says, at the time, people will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of the heavens. You see, Jesus is going to come and destroy evil once and for all. And uh, we will be with him in paradise at the end of time. So you don't have to worry necessarily about everything that's going on. Instead, it should actually instill in you some hope that as we th see things get worse, as uh, lives as Christians get worse and it becomes more painful and harder, we should know and recognize that even though it is difficult and we shouldn't ignore that, but the ultimate reality is that that is the day that we're looking for. That's the day that we're hopeful for, not because it's so bad, but because Christ is about to come. And the people of the Bible and scripture that you read about, the disciples, the apostles, they all believed that Jesus was coming back in their generation, just like you should still have that hope that Jesus is gonna come back in this generation too. So next question. What determines the communion dates for General Baptist churches? I thought this was awesome that this came online and it came a couple, uh, couple weeks ago and I was like, well, we're gonna have communion on this Sunday. So I'm just gonna make that question during our communion Sunday. Uh, I have a pretty quick answer to this. Each church decides when they want to have communion. And that's like the simple, straightforward answer. Some General Baptist churches, they'll do it once a month. Um, I, I've heard of some, they'll call it First Sunday. So each first Sunday of the month, they'll, they'll serve and share communion together. Uh, most General Baptist churches that I know of, uh, they have communion quarterly, which is what this church does. Meaning that there's a specified time in, um, that they've decided, the leadership of that church has decided that each quarter on this Sunday, they're going to have communion. Now, um, our church here at Shady Grove, we do it once a quarter, and the deacons and I, we decide on what Sunday we're gonna have communion when the quarter approaches. Now, if you've been here long enough, you know that when the quarter approaches is also when our Sunday school materials come. So when the Sunday school materials come, it reminds me and the deacons 
that it's about time to have communion. So usually when Sunday school materials come, it's not the only deciding factor, but we'll, we'll kind of look at our calendars and decide within uh, a couple Sundays from uh, that day that we get the Sunday school materials in. But that's, that's our answer for us, um, but really it's just up to the church. So next question. Okay, you can read it hopefully on the screens. I'm just gonna read the first part. Should I work on Sundays? Should I work on Sundays? Now, I think that there's two parts to this question, and uh, this is gonna be a longer one for me to go through, uh, but there's two parts to this question. One is that does the Sabbath day of rest still apply to us as New Testament Christians? And two, if it does, is Sunday our Sabbath day? And if not, if it's not our Sabbath day, can I work on Sunday? So does the Sabbath apply to us as Christians after the death and resurrection of Christ? The Sabbath comes from uh, the days of creation. I wanna give you a little bit of background of the Sabbath day because you might not actually know this about the Sabbath, but it comes from the days of creation where on the seventh day, God rested. Not because he had to, but I I think it's because he was demonstrating something, which later shows up in the 10 commandments to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Even in the law of Moses, which you'll find in Exodus and Leviticus and again in Deuteronomy, uh, will say that anyone who works on the Sabbath is to be put to death. Right, so this was, uh, if you didn't, if you worked on the Sabbath, that was worth the death penalty for them. Now Sabbath for the Israelites and later in Jews in the New Testament, because they saw the seventh day demonstrated by God, they observed it on the seventh day of the week. Traditionally, uh, since they worked out their days a little bit different than we do, we do midnight to midnight. They did like 6 p.m., which was sunset to sunset. That was their days. So on these days, uh, it was Friday at sunset or around six o'clock to Sunday or to Saturday at sunset, which was also around six o'clock. So they'd go 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. Friday night going into Saturday evening. Now, part of the reason for this is because they only worked during the daylight hours. So if there's, uh, they would use the sun as their guide, but no one is going to go out and work in their fields, even though they technically could, they're not going to at night because they can't see anything. Right? They don't have light bulbs there that I know of. Uh, so they, you know, they didn't have field lights. They didn't have tractors or anything with light. So it's, uh, they, they just didn't work at night. Now, Jesus, as you probably know, if you've been in church, did a lot of things on the Sabbath day that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not like. Uh, he healed on the Sabbath. He, him and his disciples, at one point, they, they even harvested some, some wheat on the Sabbath day. And all of that was considered work. In Matthew chapter uh, 12, verses 11 through 12, it's actually where this quote comes from. Uh, He says to them, if if any of you have a sheep and it falls into a pit on Sabbath, will will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, a little bit before, he claims this in verse eight. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this also happens in Mark. This story happens in Mark as well. And Mark includes this in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, meaning the Sabbath was, met, 
made to meet the needs of man, meaning they needed rest. So God created the Sabbath so that they could have rest. Man was not made to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was made to give people the rest that they required and that they needed. It was not made as something to check off the box of something that you did. Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is saying here and what he even says when he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath is one, he's not abolishing Sabbath. He's not abolishing that you don't need rest. What he's saying is that I have fulfilled the Sabbath. I I fulfilled it in a way that the Sabbath day couldn't accomplish. It's not about a particular day of the week anymore. It's about pursuing me and loving me. It's about finding your rest in me. And this rest is a deeper kind of rest than the Sabbath day could ever offer. Hebrews chapter four even says that those who follow Christ enter this same rest. Now we have a much greater Sabbath that is for us to await. And that's the day that Christ comes back. The day that Christ comes back and we're all resurrected and we're going up to heaven with him. On that day, that's when we will enter our, our true Sabbath rest. And this true Sabbath rest means that we will never get tired. We will never grow weary. We will, we will never feel pain. We'll never feel heartache. We'll never feel grief. It, it will be a true and genuine rest. We won't have to worry anymore. But all that means is that we don't have to observe the Sabbath from Friday to Saturday. So what about Sunday? Sunday is considered the Lord's day in the Bible. We get this from Acts chapter two um, and throughout the book of Acts where they worship and they break bread, they uh, find preaching. They find these moments on the first day of the week. Now, the reason that it's um, on the first day of the week, in case you didn't know this, is because that's the same day that Jesus rose from the grave. So in scripture, it says on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, that Mary and Mary Magdalene, they went to the tomb and it was empty. So each Sunday, uh, it used to be on Friday to Saturday and Saturday was, was the Lord's day, it was the Sabbath day, it's when they would worship. But when Jesus rose from the grave, what actually happened was they started celebrating the risen Savior. Not the Savior on the day that he was still in the grave, but the day that he rose from the grave. So that's why throughout church history, we've worshiped on Sunday. And we've considered that the Lord's day. Because Sunday, each Sunday is meant to be like a mini Easter celebration. Each Sunday. Uh, And it's a celebration that we still have hope in Christ that he has risen, he will be resurrected and we will be resurrected with him when he comes back. And this day was set aside for worship in the early church. Now it was different from the Sabbath day, which means that those Jewish Christians who still observe the Sabbath day differentiated the Sabbath day is different from the Lord's day, which was Sunday. So what that also means is that those early Jewish Christians who still observed the Sabbath still worked on Sunday. That they worked on Sunday. Now they didn't uh, deny gathering together. They would gather, they would worship together and then they would go and work. But Sunday 
somewhere in church history, we merged Sabbath and the Lord's Day as all one day. Not to say that that's necessarily wrong, but that's just what we did as, as our church history developed. So Sunday was set aside as a day where you didn't work, you'd go to church, you, you'd gather with your, your family, you'd worship with your church family, you'd go home, you'd take a nap, you just wouldn't do anything. I actually know people to this day that they still don't go out to eat, they still don't go grocery shopping, no matter how much they need milk and bread, they won't do it on Sunday. They don't mow their lawn. That they're, they're embarrassed to see any, like to have been seen anywhere other than first ministering and evangelizing to people or in their own home, doing nothing. Like they won't even do like the dishes or anything. Like all of that is considered work to them. And so they don't do it. They'll, they'll wait till Monday. They'll wait till the next day. Others are kind of forced to work on Sundays. Uh, they, that's just where their job requires them. They have to work on Sundays because of their job. But those people, uh, even in uh, the early church, they still found ways to worship with their church family outside of maybe a Sunday morning. And it did cause tension because, you know, this, uh, this is a worshipful gathering, but it's also a, a social gathering too. Like we, we love to interact with each other. And if we see someone that's not here, then immediately we're like, well, what's wrong? Right? Where are they at? Why aren't they at church? What, what happened to them, right? But what, and it created this tension because then all of these people that only come on Sunday morning, don't go on Sunday nights, don't go on Wednesday nights, don't see each other outside of Sunday morning, they think that these people are just never going to church. But the reality is, is that they aren't denying their gathering together because they're still going on Sunday night. They're still going on Wednesday night. It just might not be Sunday morning. Um, Romans chapter 14 Verse five, uh, says it this way. Paul says, it, Paul says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So what it means for you is that if, if you regard Sunday as your day of rest, Paul would say, keep it, hold on to it. Don't change it, right? If Sunday is your day of rest and that's what you want your day of rest to be and, and Sunday is more special for you as far as the day of the week, Keep it, hold on to it, don't change it. Continue to rest, continue to worship. Others might say that your rest day might vary week to week. One week, it could be Saturday. The next week, it could be Monday or the following week, it could be a Wednesday. It just kind of depends on how each day goes. Paul would say, be convinced that each day is alike and still find moments to rest. But Hebrews chapter 20 or 10 verse 25 would say, do not give up meeting with one another. So even though you might not be able to rest on Sunday, you should still find ways to worship with your family, uh, with your church family together with other believers. Now, all of that being said, I do believe this, and this is just my opinion, right? If you don't wanna have a full day of Sabbath, I don't think scripturally I can tell you that you're wrong. But my opinion, based on my personal study of scripture, so you can take it however you want to, prioritizing a day of rest, whatever day it is for you, it doesn't matter. Mine is never Sunday because I'm up here and I'm preaching. This is part of my work. Usually mine is Monday, but sometimes it, it varies. Whatever that day is for you that you set and you scheduled for rest and you're pursuing God throughout that day. I think a lot of people, they take Sabbath days, they don't work, but they, don't also, they also don't pursue God. 
And so you're getting physical rest, but you're not getting spiritual rest. You're getting physical rest, but you're not getting the mental and emotional rest. That's where, that's where Christ comes in. So you have to pursue Christ throughout the day, but I promise you it will be more beneficial than if you don't. Uh, if you don't already do this, it's probably gonna be more beneficial than you actually realize. The, the weeks in my life that I've it kind of ignored the Sabbath and I'm like, there's so much to do at the church. There's so much things happening with my family that I have to do. There's been times in this church while I've been preaching here that I would take two weeks and I'd work 14 days out of the two weeks. And Chloe can attest to that. And she says, I'm a grouch. Like, I, because I am, I'm, I'm so exhausted and I don't have any moment where I can just rest in the presence of God. It, you, see, you might think that it's different for ministry, but I still have to have moments where I'm not preparing for a sermon. I still have to have moments where I'm pursuing God and just coming to him as, as servant and master and not pastor, you know, coming to, the, coming to God so that I can preach this to the church. There has to be moments where I'm taking care of myself. And I think part of the reason that God in the beginning demonstrated this day of rest was so that we would have that same rest. Last question. I'm also not gonna read this entire thing because it's really long, but essentially what the question is, is what happens after we die? I know that we are resurrected with Christ, but what happens in the meantime? So first off, uh, this is something that came online too. Someone asked this online. Death is something that will happen to all of us. And I will tell you this about death. Whenever you die, you will live forever. All of us, we will live forever. The destination of where you live is up to you. How you live your life here on earth matters because it's a gift from God. Those who worship God and follow him will inherit the kingdom of God in heaven and those who reject God will be thrown into the lake of fire at the end of time and perish for eternity in hell. It's your choice. You live your life however you want to, but if you accept God, you'll inherit the kingdom of God. If you reject God, you'll be thrown in the lake of fire. That scripture is super clear on this part. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 34 Jesus says, when the son of man referring to himself comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you has been prepared for you since the creation of the world. So that means that those who are blessed in the sight of God, those who follow Christ, those who have been made, made righteous because of God, they will inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for them since the beginning of it all. But in verse 41, he says, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell was not necessarily prepared for us who would reject God. It was prepared for Satan and all of his demons, all of his angels. What happens though is in verse 46, Jesus says, they will go to their eternal punishment. So they will go where Satan and the demons dwell. 
and they will be tormented forever in eternal punishment. But in verse 46, the righteous will go to eternal life. Now that's the basic foundation of what will happen when you die. When Jesus comes back, at the end of time, the second coming of Christ, you'll be resurrected and given a new body that will be imperishable according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, meaning no disease, no sin, no evil, nor anything will be able to destroy that new body. But I think sometimes we forget about this as Christians. This is a physical resurrection we're talking about. It's not a disembodied spirit. It's a physical resurrection. We will be given a new body at the end of time. Our hope is not this embodied heaven where our spirit is floating around with all the angels and in glory. But our hope is that we have a physical resurrection and we will live physically in a new earth, in a new Jerusalem, in a new heaven. Now, side note, this is actually why one of the reasons why Christians bury their dead and why we have a cemetery right there is because um, when, when early church leaders were imagining this happening, uh, about Jesus coming back. Jesus is coming from the east. So all graves typically face towards the east. The reason for that is so that if you're laying in the grave, I think this is east. I think if I'm facing the wrong way, it doesn't matter. Uh, you get the picture. If you're facing the east in your grave, when you are resurrected on the second coming of Christ, you will raise up out of the grave and you'll be seeing Christ. Rather than if you're facing towards the west, you will raise up and then have to turn your body so that you can see Jesus coming and rising and coming back. That's, that's seriously why we, we face them a certain way, why they're buried a certain way. But we get this assurance from the resurrection of Jesus. I, I'll, I'll just say this is kind of funny. They also do this with baptism. And I hate to break it to you, but your baptistry is faced the wrong way. You know, you're, we're raising you into the West and not to the East. And my professor would say that shame on me for allowing that to happen. <laughs> but um, the question really goes around, you know, we've talked about when you die, the moment that you die and the second coming of Christ. But what happens in the meantime? Scripture actually isn't really clear. Not as clear as people from funeral homes would like for you to believe. Now, I haven't died yet, so I really don't know. Um, I haven't talked to anyone who has died, so I really don't know. But we have scriptures like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, which says, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is where we get the, the common phrase, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And this is where we get this idea of a disembodied experience in heaven where our spirit will reside momentarily before our physical resurrection at the end of time. Now, another thought, and these are all Christian ideas, right? Some of them, or one of them is, in particular, is going to sound very Catholic. And it's actually a, a Protestant thought of this too. There's three different main ways of thinking of it. One, the second way that you can think of it is like a deep sleep. Um, no dreaming nor anything. We won't have a concept of how much time has passed, but we'll be in this deep sleep until Christ comes back. Now, we get this idea from passages like Job chapter 14, verse 12, which says, so he lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. People will not awake. 
or be roused from their sleep. So according to Job, there could be this deep sleep, like one of those really good naps on the couch where you wake up and you have no idea where you are, how long you've been there, and you have, you know, you kind of feel disoriented. This, this moment, you really don't know how much time has passed. You're not really aware of anything, but one day you will wake up from your deep sleep and you will either inherit the kingdom of heaven or inherit the, the fiery punishment that you have. Now, another popular view is that there's this holding place. Catholics will call it purgatory. We just call it a holding place as Protestants. But this holding place in Hebrew is described as Sheol, or in the Greek, it's Hades. And the psalmist will use these words uh, in the Hebrew of Sheol to describe the realm of the dead. It's where the dead reside. Now, uh, for uh, the Greek translations where they're calling, uh, talking about Hades, that was the description of where the dead would reside in Greek culture, but then also it spread into uh, some of Christian ideas and how we described where the dead were. This is where the dead reside until the second coming of Christ. And in this holding place, there's a chasm between the two. This is described in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, with Lazarus the beggar, not, not the one that Jesus resurrected from the grave, but Lazarus the beggar and the rich man. Now, to jog some of your memories about this, if you've been in church for a really long time, you've probably heard this. If not, you probably haven't because it's kind of a hard passage to preach. But Lazarus is a poor beggar. He's covered in sores. The, the dogs would come up and lick his sores. And, and he's just hoping that this rich man would drop something from his table so that he could eat. And the rich man never gave him anything, never offered him anything, never really seemed to care about anything. And Jesus uh, talks about how this rich man dies and the Lazarus or in Lazarus the beggar dies and one of them goes to one place one side of the chasm the other one goes to the other side of the chasm with father Abraham so it's like in this they're describing two different lobbies two different holding places one is the DMV and the other one is really nice with good comfortable furniture and you can just sit there and, and relax and it's, it's wonderful. You have people serving you all the time. Like it's, it's a really good lobby and a really bad lobby. And unlike Catholic teaching, what differentiates us from that is that once you're in that lobby, that's it. Uh, you cannot pray for one to move from one side or the other. Once you're in the heavenly lobby, you're, you're gonna reside in the heavenly lobby until Christ comes back and then you'll be physically resurrected. But if you are residing in the, the hell lobby, then you will, at the end of time, be thrown into the lake of fire after facing the throne of judgment. But there is no way for you to go to the other. In this story, you even find where the rich man is begging for Abraham to allow Lazarus to just touch the tip of his tongue, so that he could be relieved for a moment of all of the heat, all of the pain, all of the suffering. And Abraham will tell him, you can't come over here. He can't go over there. It's separated. And there's a reason that it's separated. Just like he separates the sheep and the goats, this is the separation that happens. So if you choose to follow him, this is what really matters. And I think this is why scripture isn't clear because what happens in the meantime isn't what matters. 
What matters is what happens at the end of time when Christ comes back. If you choose to follow him, you will live for eternity in the presence of God. And if you reject him, you will live for eternity absent from the presence of God. And I don't know about you, but I would prefer not to live in the absence of God because that means there is no life, there is no hope, there's nothing. Everything that God has created in this world will be completely gone. And it will be nothing but torment because there will be no peace. It will be nothing but pain because there will be no healing. And if you reject him, you will live in this absent presence of God for all of eternity. And you may seem, it seems out of character for God. We just talked about how he's a forgiving God, for God to send people to hell. Uh, uh, God's so loving, so full of forgiveness and grace. Why would he send all of his creation to hell, those who didn't follow him? Why would he send them to a place of torment and suffering for such a long time? It seems like such a harsh punishment for just people who live just about 80 years for them to inherit this eternity in torment. And I would tell you, he doesn't. He doesn't send you, you send yourself because you ask for it. You ask for it. Do you know the word Sheol, which references this death, darkness, grave, holding place, whatever you wanna think of it, and even describes hell, is derived from the Hebrew verb that means asked for or requested. Meaning that when they were talking about Sheol, they're saying, you literally ask for it. You know, why would God force people to live in a place that they didn't want? Why would God look at people here on earth and, and the people who are like, no, I don't wanna follow God. I don't wanna be under God's rule. I don't wanna have anything to do with God. I don't wanna listen to God. I don't wanna do anything with God. I, I just want this short amount of years. I want it to be myself. I wanna create myself. I don't want God to create me. I don't want God to work through me. Why would God say, well, I'm gonna force you to be in a place where you are under my rule, where you are under my protection, where you are gonna follow me and you are gonna listen to me. Why would he do that? He wouldn't do that. They asked to not be in the presence of God and God is giving them exactly what they asked for. They like you, before you came to know and accept Christ, asked to be sent away from God. You asked for God to not control your life. You asked him not to rule over you. So he gave you exactly what you asked for. And as Romans will say, he turned them over to their fleshly desires. But God, in all of his love, in all of his righteousness, all of his mercy, all of his grace, even though every single person who has ever lived on this earth has asked for God to not control them, has asked for hell over heaven. In all of his love, in his mercy and his grace, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and rise again, knowing good and well that most of the world would still ask him for hell would still ask that they would be absent from the presence of God. But he still did it because he wanted the few, the ones who would go through that narrow gate. To, uh, he said, I'm giving you the opportunity to change the course of your story for my glory. He offers you this opportunity to say, you know, I know my story is going away from God, but I wanna change my story and I wanna do it to glorify God. And even though we all deserve hell, all of us, it doesn't matter how good you think you are, you all deserve hell. I deserve hell, but he bought us back. He paid the price. He offered us salvation and redemption that through him, we might be made righteous before God, 
on that final day. So on that day, when we see him face to face on front of the judgment seat, he will look at you and I, and he will see only his son shining. And he will look at you and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. For with you, I am well pleased. And I hope to see you there on that day. I can't make you, but I hope that you're there to share with that experience with me. And I want you to be there with me, but it's completely up to you. And so if you haven't already, you have the opportunity today to come before God and say, I wanna follow you, I wanna serve you, and I want you. I wanna follow your ways because they're better than my ways. I wanna follow your, your thoughts. I, I wanna know your thoughts because they're better than my thoughts. I want to just follow you because I know the life that you can give me is better than anything this world can give me not because uh, of the things of the world will pass away, but because what you give me will last for an eternity. The world will give me, it's gonna be gone, but you'll give me something that will last for eternity. And I would encourage you, if that's you, to take a physical step up to this altar and pray and have us pray for you. But if you also are someone that, uh, you, you know someone, you, you've accepted this free gift of salvation and you, live and you're looking forward to that day, but you know someone who hasn't made that decision yet. I would also encourage you to come to the altar to pray on their behalf. Let, them, let, let God know that you care so much about them that you wanna see God transform their life so that they walk with you into the gates of heaven.